Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you.
again and again Cause all that I have is a hallelujah Hallelujah And I know it's not much But I'm nothing else fit for a king Except for a heart singing So 
1 Samuel, and in so doing, we're going to look at some snapshots in the lives of Saul and David. I'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 7 through 14. I'm going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 29. And then I'm going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 15. And then I'm just going to be reading a few verses from the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 6. But let's begin our reading with 1 Samuel chapter 13, and I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 14, beginning with verse 7. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, And the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept the Lord, what the Lord commanded you. Let's move forward to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I'll be reading most of this chapter, verses 1 through 29, beginning with verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them at Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. Everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. 
and it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel sent to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, Were you not head of the tribes of Israel, and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as is iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Let's move forward to 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to just read verses 1 through 15. Twenty-four, beginning with verse one. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him what seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, for I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog, a flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Move forward to the New Testament book of Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 says, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as is to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. And then finally, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, Even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Child of God, Christian, live your life to please God. When you do, you are following the perfect divine example of your Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus, God the Son, was here on earth being fully God and fully man, his actions were taken to bring glory to God and to please God the Father. Jesus explained this to his disciples as is recorded in John 8, 27 and 28. The verses say, Then Jesus said to them, 
When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. To please God, to be a God-pleaser, you must first be saved. You must first have faith. A person must have faith in order to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 explains saving faith. The verses say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen. And Hebrews eleven six says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. As the Holy Spirit calls you to salvation and eternal life, you are filled with God the Holy Spirit. And as you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and you yield all of your members, your very life to God, and walk according to the Spirit, you please God. Your will becomes aligned with his will. You eschew and turn from and forsake the flesh. Even as you may continue to experience fleshly desires and temptations, you allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you. And as you do, you please God. Romans 8, 6 through 8 explains this process. The verses say, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then that are in the flesh cannot please God, the verses say. Now another term found in God's word used to describe a man pleaser is the term flatterer. And what is a flatterer? What is flattery? Well, presently in our everyday vernacular, we seldom use the term flattery or flatter. But a good way to describe a flatterer using a more modern term would be to apply the term manipulator or manipulation to a flatterer. A flatterer is a person that says good things about you with the purpose of manipulating you. In a way, the flatterer almost uses encouragement as a weapon. Often when a flatterer compliments you, they really don't mean it. The flatterer is insincere. The flatterer is a man-pleaser and, manip and manipulator, and their goal is to charm and beguile a person into trusting them so that the flatterer can use them. The flatterer will say things that aren't true. They will say things they don't mean. God's Word warns us about the dangers and pitfalls associated with man-pleasing flatterers and their practices. Psalm 12.2 tells us that the flatterer has a double heart. Now, in colloquial terms, we might say that a flatterer talks out of both sides of their mouth or that they're two-faced. Like a, an electioneering politician, their talking points are subject to change depending on who they were talking to and the composition of their audience. In describing the flatterer, the verse says, they speak idly everyone with his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. The flatterer may say good things, wonderful things to your face, but they really don't mean them. 
Now, the term idly means that their words are frivolous and vain and that they have no real worth or significance because they're insincere. Proverbs 2.16 warns us that a person may use flattery to seduce a person to gain sexual favors. The verse counsels a wise man to receive wisdom and to live and behave according to wisdom. The verse describes the immoral flatterer this way, as a person, quote, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. And they're talking about wisdom when they say to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress, who flatters with her words. The flatterer may use their manip- excuse me, manipulative art to control and trap their victims. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Flatters and man-pleaser schemes are capable of bringing people to ruin. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. The flatterer will use their flattery to uncover secrets, to fuel gossip, to destroy people's reputations. The talebearer, the whisperer's craft, what we call gossip, is also a dangerous sin and a grievous sin to God. Have you ever known anyone that gossiped about another person to hurt or destroy that person's reputation without the victim of the gossip campaign even knowing or realizing the assault on them was taking place? Friend, gossip can destroy lives and reputations. Proverbs 20:19 says, "He who goes about as a talebearer, some translations say a gossip, reveals secrets. Therefore, Do not associate with one who flatters with their lips. The New Living Translation says basically this, don't hang around with them. Man-pleasers or flatterers cannot be trusted. But listen, a true friend will always tell you the truth, even if it may hurt. Proverbs 28, 23 says, He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with his tongue. It is better to be corrected and told the truth than to be coddled in delusional lies. Now, we're seeing this kind of evil deception at work in our country today as people are encouraged to stay and remain in their sin, and they're told they should celebrate their sin and take pride in their sin. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 6 reminds us that as Christians, we understand the truth. We hold the truth. God has entrusted the truth to us and given us the truth to share the gospel truth with those that are perishing in darkness, not to tell them what they want to hear. The apostle Paul didn't use flattery to gain favor. He told people the truth, even when it might be painful for him to do so, even when he knew that he would have to face persecution. The verses that we read said, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Proverbs 24, 24 and 25 describes this perfidious practice of flattery. The verses say, He who says to the wicked, you're righteous, him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. 
Having a person, having a friend, a trusted friend in your life is important. Having people in your life that only tell you what you want to hear is destructive and dangerous. In the account we read from 1 Samuel, we see an illustration or a picture of a man-pleaser and a God-pleaser. Those were the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. Now, one man, Saul, was a man-pleaser. And his desire was to please people instead of trusting God. And in so doing, it proved to be his undoing. Saul lost his kingdom and his life because he was led by the flesh. Instead of seeking to please God, the God that had placed him in the position that he held as king, he sought to control his own destiny and maintain power by manipulating people, politically maneuvering and influencing people. When Saul offered the burnt sacrifice at Gilgal. This was an affront to God because he did not wait for the prophet Samuel to conduct these sacrificial rituals as God had specifically instructed. Friends, we, you and I, are to wait patiently and expectantly with faith for God. Romans 8, 24 and 25 reminds us to trust and wait patiently for God, not allowing anything to deter us. The verses say, for we were saved in this hope, But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And what does it mean to wait with perseverance? It means to wait not letting anything stop you. Not letting anything stand in your way. It means to wait while continuing to press on not giving up, not quitting. By conducting the sacrifice, Saul not only sought to control the political kingdom, but he also was trying to usurp the spiritual duties and authority away from Samuel and to exercise control as a spiritual leader, and this displeased God. Instead of seeking to please God and to focus his efforts on obeying God as he had been directed to by the prophet Samuel. He sought to please the people and consolidate his political power. And how do we know this? Well, when, when he was confronted by the man of God, Saul admitted his motivation. In 1 Samuel 13, 8, it tells us exactly the reason. It says that the people, his followers, were scattered. His people were deserting Saul due to the fear and anxiety they were experiencing as they anticipated an impending war. They were afraid and were leaving. And what is a leader without followers? In 1 Samuel 10, 8, Samuel issued very specific instructions to Saul. We didn't read that. But Samuel decreed, you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and to make a peace offering. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you to show you what you should do. Laughter Saul disobeyed God and made the burnt offering, Samuel asked him, as is recorded in verse 11, what have you done? Saul replied, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, instead of trusting God and demonstrating his faith through obedience to God, he followed that which he could see, and he sought to please visible men instead of an invisible God. Friend, Christian, you and I are to keep our spiritual eyes fixed on God. We are to expectantly wait for Him in His imminent return. 
Jesus reminded his followers that they needed to keep their eyes turned heavenward and remain focused upon his return to gather away his children. As is recorded in Luke 21, 27, and 28, Jesus said, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your head because your redemption draws near. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says that we should comfort one another with these words pertaining to Christ's rapture of his children as they will be caught up with Jesus Christ. We are to look for that which we cannot see at the present and set aside all that we can see in this world that would cause us to stumble or fall away from the faith. Peter explained that as our faith is tried in this sinful world, we are to keep our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our heart, on Jesus, who we cannot at the present see with our physical eyes. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, Whom Jesus, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 remind the Christian of how to focus their sight. The verses say, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Friends, those things our relationship with Christ that no one can take from us will last forever. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 states the principle succinctly. It says it simply, for we walk by faith, not by sight. When Saul saw that his followers were abandoning him, he disobeyed God. He sought to be a man pleaser rather than a God pleaser. Now later, as Saul led Israel to war against Amalek and their leader Agag, God instructed Saul to destroy everything, including the animals, as God would enable Saul to defeat the Amalekites. But what did Saul do? He disobeyed God again. And at first, Saul claimed to have disobeyed God so that he could sacrifice those animals in an act of worship to God. But Samuel reminded Saul that sacrifice without an obedient heart is worthless and is an insulting affront to God. Samuel said, as is recorded in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, has the Lord as great delight in burnt sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and to stubbornness as is iniquity and idolatry. So how would that play out in our world today? If I had a, a, a syndicated crime um, machine, and I was bringing in money, but then I came and gave it to the church, that would be an affront to God. Why? Because I hurt people and sinned in order to gain those finances. Believer, you and I are to take seriously God's charge to obey Him and to live our lives to please Him. We that call ourselves by the name of Christ or Christians must obey God. Those outside the family of God that have never believed and placed their trust in God that have spent their lives in disobedience and rebellion against God will experience the wrath of God. God will judge the unsaved at the great white throne judgment. 
But God, praise God, he has made a provision for all of us, the saved and the unsaved, to have their sins forgiven and forgotten. And if there's anybody here today that thinks I'm too far gone, I'm too, too immersed in sin, friend, you can be set free today by the power of Jesus Christ and his saving grace. We are to confess or admit our sins to God and then repent and turn from our sins. David understood this requirement of confession of sin even while living under the Old Testament system or economy. David wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as is recorded in Psalm 32.5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we confess our sin to God, he will forgive us. And once you've confessed your sin, you don't need to worry that God will remember it. No, thank God. God's word tells us that he chooses to forget our sin. The book of Micah tells us that God lets our sins fall to the bottom of the sea, metaphorically speaking. Micah 7.19 says, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. In Hebrews 8, 12, God's word tells us that under Christ's new covenant that God will not remember our sins anymore. Praise God. So friend, once you're saved and you've, asked, you've confessed your sins and you've asked Jesus to forgive you, you don't have to carry that weight of guilt anymore because God has forgotten those sins. Praise God. But listen, God will hold accountable those that have not believed and trusted Jesus Christ unto salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9 describes the fate of those that do not believe unto salvation and disobey God. The verses say, and to you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But what about the professing Christian? What about those that claim to love God? Are his redeemed children expected to obey him? Yes, we are. The Christian's obedience is a testimony to the fact that the Christian is saved and living their lives to please God. 1 John 2, 4, and 5 explains God's expectations of obedience for his children. The verses say, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandment, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. In John 14, 23, and 24, Jesus ex expressed his expectation of obedience for the believer. The verses say, Jesus answered and said to him, he was talking to Judas, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Well, Saul did not please God. He sought to please men rather than to please God. Saul, the leader, Saul, the politician, concerned himself with ingratiating himself to the crowd and placating the people. He was more interested in pleasing them than pleasing and obeying God. 
Saul was being duplicitous in claiming that he spared the animals in an effort to worship God. His real heart motivation is revealed in 1 Samuel 15, 24. The verse says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul behaved as the consummate man-pleaser. A God-pleaser will not go along with and follow the crowd. A man-pleaser will abandon his or her convictions and join the crowd to do evil. A man-pleaser will compromise and cast aside the principles of right and wrong to jump on the popularity bandwagon. God reminded the children of Israel that following the crowd to sin is sinful and evil. Exodus 23, 2 says, You shall not follow the crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Friend, listen, if many or a multitude of people are saying that something evil is right, their being a majority doesn't justify their sin. A majority cannot make a lie the truth. Listen, friends, stand firm. When you are standing alone for Christ and His righteousness, stand firm. Stand even when a majority may oppose you. Be willing to obey God even unto death. The Christian is always to stand fast and firm for truth and righteousness. Ephesians 5.13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The Christian is not to be a partaker of evil. The Christian is not to have fellowship with those engaged in evil acts. We don't support that. When you hear people saying that evil is good and that good is evil, do not follow them. Do not go along to get along. We are to oppose, reprove, and speak out in truth against evil or sin. Ephesians 5, 6, and 7 directs the Christian to remain true to God and to remain obedient to his word. The verse says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. What's that saying? It's saying, don't take part in, don't participate in evil. The Christian is to expose and reprove evil, not to go along with it. Ephesians 5.11 says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose, some translations say, or reprove them. What's that mean? It means to correct them. Don't go along with it. We have a responsibility in the church to confront sinful offenses and bring restoration to broken relationships that result from sin, especially among brothers and sisters in Christ within the church. How do we know that? Well, Jesus outlined this process of offenses, correction, and restoration, as is recorded in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Jesus said, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. Now, over the summer, I had an opportunity to visit some different churches, and I visited a church that had exercised this process 
as one of the members, a wife, had been offended by another member of the church, her husband. He had been involved in an adulterous affair, and when confronted by the church, he refused to repent and terminate the sinful extramarital relationship. And then after this process had taken place on the day that I attended the service, the pastor explained to the church body why this man would no longer be considered a member of the church. The pastor lovingly, without rancor and without sharing any sensational or salacious details, executed his responsibility to take care of this matter and handle the situation in a proper biblical manner. But listen, a person that loves God will desire to obey and please God. A person that loves God will desire to make things right and to be reconciled to an offended, estranged brother or sister in Christ. A person that loves Jesus Christ will fall under conviction for their sin and desire repentance from sin to receive cleansing and forgiveness from God. Well, Saul sought to justify his sin. He was more interested in eye service. He was more interested in the optics or the appearance of the situation. He sought to be a man pleaser rather than to be a God pleaser. And the results were tragic for Saul and his family. In contrast, David, even as a fugitive running for, for his life from a monomaniacal Saul, obsessed with killing David, demonstrated that he was more interested in pleasing God and fully trusting God. David wanted to please God even more than he wanted to become king. David was given the opportunity to kill King Saul in a cave in En Gedi. And David had already been anointed by king to be king by Samuel. And you can read this account in Samuel chapter 16. We didn't read that. But Saul was hunting David with the intention of murdering him. Moreover, David's men were with him, and Saul was alone in a vulnerable position. He was having a bowel movement in a cave. Well, finding Saul, his tormentor, in this position may have appeared to be the perfect opportunity for David to rid himself of his nemesis Saul and ascend to the throne. Had David condoned or called for Saul's assassination, he probably would have been viewed as a hero in the eyes of his followers. David's men certainly thought he should kill Saul. They even tried to convince David to take matters into his own hands and assert himself to eliminate his enemy Saul. 1 Samuel 24, 4 says, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. There's just one big problem with what David's men said to him. It wasn't true. God had not ever directed David to kill Saul. David was not a man pleaser. David acted as a God pleaser. And what did he do? Well, he directed his men to refrain from killing Saul. David trusted God. He believed that if he remained obedient to God, that God would protect him. God would deliver him from Saul. God would give the kingdom to David in due time, in God's timing. David acted as a true leader. He stood firm upon his understanding and the convictions of what he believed God wanted him to do. He didn't follow the dictates of the people. He didn't follow the crowd. He didn't follow his own men. Instead of being influenced by the crowd, he acted as a true leader and a God-pleaser to exercise authority over his men to do good and to do the will of God. We see that David expressed his complete trust 
in his God, as is recorded in 1 Samuel 24, 15. David said, Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. David followed the principle set forth in Proverbs 20, 22. The wise saying goes, Do not say I will pay back or recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Consider the restraint that it must have taken David not to follow the advice of his men, not to be a man pleaser as he lived under fearful circumstances. He was unjustly being pursued by someone who wanted to murder him. How easy it would have been to listen to the voices urging him to kill Saul. He probably would have even had not himself to commit the, the deed. One of his men probably would have taken care of Saul's disposal. But David loved God. He loved the idea of pleasing God. Friend, a Christian seeks to please God. A Christian seeks to obey God. A Christian will seek to bring glory to their God. They do not practice eye service that will bring glory to themselves. If and when a visible opportunity for an outward testimony is made available to them, they use that opportunity not to glorify themselves, but to glorify God. Ephesians 6.6 explains that we are to do the work as unto Christ, whatever our works are, with sincerity, not with eye service, with the sole purpose of calling attention to ourselves and being seen by a boss or a supervisor. In the long-running TV series Seinfeld, the character George would, on the weekends, strategically park his car at his place of employment over the weekends to create the illusion that he was there working and logging additional time for the betterment of his company and employer. This deceptive ruse was totally eye service because he wasn't at work at all, toiling on the weekends. His goal was to fool his boss into believing that he was a dedicated worker, that he was dedicated to his career, and that he was an uber-loyal employee willing to put on additional time on the weekends. Those men-pleasers that engage in eye service really don't care about the quality of their work and doing their best. The man-pleaser only wants to create the impression or the illusion that they are outstanding workers. The eye-service man-pleasing manipulator is only doing their work to receive the praise of men. It doesn't matter if the man-pleaser isn't really a good worker as long as they're successful at creating the perception that they're a good worker. So what does eye-service for the purpose of self-seeking and self-glorification look like? Well, Jesus described it as is recorded in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you that they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. A man-pleaser will have a selfish heart motivation, and their purpose to do good is really not a purpose, isn't really to do good. It is to receive glory for themselves. 
A God-pleaser seeks to do good and obedience to bring glory to the kingdom of God. Their heart motivation is doing good works in obedience and love for others and love for God and to bring glory to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make this clear by asking this question. Is it always wrong to do things for others that are pleasing to them? No. When we minister to people, when we help people, when we encourage people, when we pray for people, when we send cards of encouragement to people, we're doing things for them that the recipients of those gifts may, or those uh, things, kind works that we do, may find pleasing. Romans 14, 2 and 3 tells us that as Christians, we should be pleasing our neighbors by doing good to them, by building them up in their faith to bolster and strengthen them spiritually. The verses say, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When we please someone for their good, we act in sincerity and we please God. Jesus pleased God the Father even as he was slandered, even as he was falsely accused, even as Jesus was unfairly maligned, as he was ridiculed, as he was insulted and attacked. When we do good works to encourage a brother or sister in Christ, we should be doing so with sincere love for them and with genuine love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus wanted his children to shine forth the light of his gospel to his glory, the glory of God. Jesus said in Matthew five fourteen through 16, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and this is key, glorify your Father in heaven. A man-pleaser seeks to glorify himself. A God-pleaser seeks to glorify God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know the sin that's in each of our hearts. Father, we turn to you and we thank you. You made it possible for us to have our sins washed clean. We thank you, Jesus, that through your shed blood and what you were willing to do for us on the cross has made it possible for every one of us to be reconciled to you. Jesus, we thank you for salvation. And Lord, I pray if there be anyone here today that does not know you or that is listening, Father, I pray that you would call them to you by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would trust you and believe in you unto salvation. And Lord, I pray for myself and everyone here that has trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that you would help us to not be men-pleasers, but God, that you would help our lives to be formed around the idea and the practice of loving you and pleasing you. Lord, we know that we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that you will enable us to do the things that you've set forward, forth for us, no matter how hard they might be, that, Lord, with you we can do all things to your glory. Lord, we ask that you'd go with us now, and we pray all these things, asking that not our will be done, but that your will be done. We delight ourselves in you, and we pray in faith, believing in Jesus' name. Amen.